Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hero worship, it's the kind of thing they warn you against when you start getting into the music business as an interviewer or DJ or whatever. They're like, just be careful. Don't lean too deep into that. A, they may let you down. B, no one really wants to hear you, you know, over-elaborate. Although, <laughs> I don't think it's unfair to say that I've probably built a lot of my career around over-elaborating my love of music. But the point is, when it comes to Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan, I'm shameless. I am a super fan. Here's a band who came around an important part of my life. I wasn't really expecting rock and roll to show up again. I was into other things, other genres of music. I was not really looking out for anything that had any heaviness to it. And then, of course, the early 90s was a golden time. Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Smashing Pumpkins, who were always outsiders. This is a scene that was full of outsiders, but the Pumpkins were way on the outside. They were coming at it as fans of Rush, Cheap Trick, Fleetwood Mac, very progressive pop music, but wrapped up into Billy Corgan's love of kiss and heavy metal and all that stuff that just made it really heavy. Their second album, Siamese Dream, is the classic everybody refers to, but their catalog is full of weird and wonderful moments, and even if you listen to some of the recent Pumpkins albums, there are definitely highlights on those records that stand up. So we find the band returning with a lot of material, a lot of songs wrapped up into this forthcoming new album, and a lot to talk about. But again, you know, when it comes to someone like Billy Corgan, you can walk in with a framework of, let's talk about the album, or you can just start. And so we did. This is my latest conversation with one of my heroes, Billy Corgan, right here on the interview series. As the world seemingly falls apart, and as children only look to music for 30 seconds at a time, one man, one band stand in the way. <laughs> Smashing pumpkins return and feed the fans like nobody else on this planet right now. <laughs> It is a banquet, my man. A banquet of music. Where have you been my whole life, saying love? I've been staring at you, listening at you, waiting to get your attention. Over here, super fan number 1,362 in the second row at every shop. It's good to see you, man. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. We are here, Billy Corgan, to talk about this remarkable new album and the journey you've been on to make it. I'm really thrilled to dive into it. It is called Sia. And I joked at the start about there being a lot of music and and I think the idea of creating something that has structure that allows us to lose ourselves in music as a body of work is isn't the obvious place that that artists go now. And yet you find yourself going deep, deep, deep on this record. What prompted you to put out a body of work that is is this kind of elaborate and this wide? What is the thing in you that makes you go, mm, I'm going all in on this? Well, I, I've been beating the drum for a few years that the band, if, it, if the band has a future, it's as a creative unit, not as a touring greatest hits thing. Yeah. You know, you reach this point in the music business where everyone kind of starts edging you towards the wall because it's just a lot easier. And I literally have to have these discussions where I try to tell people, you don't understand the, the real energy in this band is in creativity. If you can get that right, you'll get everything else you want on the other side of the wall, including big tours, big hits. You'll get it all. You'll get it all. But but this band works a particular way, and you just have to let it happen. And I found there was a certain amount of resistance to that because of the amount of work that was necessary. Um, so yeah, I just I just said, well, I'm not asking for permission. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. Um, and the tw the 20 songs was the end result of like going super deep and just sort of trying to evolve what we were capable of doing in the 21st century and, and understanding that part of that was not relying on 
familiar things, like had to kind of crack the code and find a new language, which I'd done before. So it's not like he didn't do it on a door or machina. And the only way I know how to do that is work for about a year on something like over and over again until I kind of figure something out that can only be figured out with repetition and stupidity or something. You know, it just takes time. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because when I listen to this album, it's there, there's so much of it that is actually overwhelming, which is a great thing because I realize now I have this opportunity to go there and I now have the time because you took the time to make it. I have the time to, to unpack it and work it all out. Just going through the lyrics and we'll talk about words in a minute. So important to this experience. Um, there's a, there's a lot in there, but I think the first thing that fans recognized when you returned was that you were once again dancing and moving in, in a unique sonic landscape. That it was like, you know what, this is the this is the the sound I hear to go along with the feeling which goes along with the words. And I, I, I guess the question is what came first this time? Was it the writing? Was it the feeling? Was it the listening and going, you know what, I love that synth? Like where did it begin for you to, to, to get there to the sonic space? Um, I think it starts with... Um I'll try to be succinct because it's it's something I could go on about for a half hour. Because um, I, I know, well, I know, at least from what I know, a lot of musicians want to understand my process. So I talk about this a lot mm -hmm. in like my Instagram account. When you're young and you don't have anything to lose, you make very simple binary choices. Riff A is more exciting than Riff B. Okay. When you've done something for 30 years, like anybody else, you assume that whatever comes out of your mouth or whatever you play has a certain kind of, you know, unique quality because it's been proven by the marketplace. Like you're still there. Right. But if you go back to your 20 year old self, your 20 year old self doesn't care about any of that. Your 20 year old self only goes riff A is more exciting than riff B. So I would have a riff sear. The single sear is a perfect example. It was originally a guitar riff, like a heavy. And we started with the heavy guitar riff. And somewhere along the way, we said, well, let's try it this other way to see if there's something there. So got a big fat synth going, duh, 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 and we looked at each other and go, well, that's more exciting. <laughs> that's your A and B. That's it. So then it just becomes a series of binary choices. There isn't a, there isn't a devil sitting on your shoulder going, yeah, but the Smashing Pumpkins fans, you know, they expect to hear that guitar now. Don't you forget. You, you, gotta, you, you, you go back to the primal space of binary choices. If somebody's not a musician listening to this, it's as simple as like, if you've ever had feelings for two people, you have to make a decision because it's unfair to the one person. And, and if you're really in love with the other, you got to kind of make a move. Well, that's kind of what it's like. You have to kind of go where your heart tells you to go. And so on an album like this, I just went where my heart told me to go. You know, there was nobody sort of standing there saying you can't do that because, and, and, and by, by the way, I like to point out for the naysayer crowd, I have done a lot of rock music. You and I have interviewed about some of the rock music I've done over the last seven years. I don't remember any mountains moving. You know, I don't, I don't remember anything super magical happening. Yeah, the albums were well-received generally. People like them. But nothing magical was happening. And at some point, you know, I'm a wizard. I go, wait, I still got light, lightning bolts in the, in the hands. You know, I can still do this. But how did I do it before? Oh, I just made binary choices. I just made really simple binary choices, A or B, A or B. And you do that over the course of a year and you kind of get used to it. You know, you forget that you're supposed to hook up the fuzz pedal or whatever. You just, you just get into a groove of like, oh, this sounds good. And then you do stuff like you invite people in. For example, uh, my management team, who I think you know a little bit personally, um, 
you know, one of them is Mark uh, Wakefield, who was was the original member of Lincoln Park. I mean, these are not, and, and Bino, my manager, you know, started with System of a Down in a Garage. You know, these are people who are real music people. I didn't let them hear the record until it was probably 90% done. Wow. And I, and I kept telling them, look, you're either going to love this thing or you're going to hate it. <laughs> like, there's no, same thing, binary choice. There's, I know there's going to be no middle ground here. And if you hate it, too bad, because it's too late. They came in, and, you know, they're excited. Okay, play it. First song, they turn around, they looked at me, they were like this. Yeah. It was shocking to them what they were hearing. You know what I mean? The good, the good version of shock. The good version of, I mean, I felt that. And when we spoke, we spoke a couple of months ago, and I was in a similar state, you know? And I think I made some kind of, I don't know, I slapped something together about the fact that it felt like um, you'd finally caught up to yourselves and that that idea of shocking us as fans based on what you're capable of as a very linear rock and roll band that can take us off into space, that shock is less shocking because you have continued to shapeshift over time. And one of the things I think that really is interesting about this album, and this is, I'm gonna nerd out and get all my nerdery out of the way so we can dive into the human thing in a minute. But the synth, the synth part of this record, right? It's undeniably anchored down by these, these really beautiful analog sounding synths and washes and pads. You've somehow maintained the naivety of that. Let me qualify that. Why the 80s is such an important decade for pop music is because every number one song was so weird and so strange and so discordant and all the things that fit together just weren't supposed to fit together. And that's because people were learning how to use synths. They were like, well, that sounds cool. I don't know what it's supposed to do with the live bass and the drums and my voice and all that shit. So I just put it in there. And next thing you know, you got Flock of Seagulls and Psychedelic Furs and Simple Minds. By the way, New Gold Dream is one of the weirdest sounding albums of all time. And they were an arena band on that. So it's like, I hear elements of all that, but not because you're cherry picking it, because it's the naivety of analog synths. You've somehow been able to recapture that. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know what I'm doing, but I didn't know what I was doing on the guitar either. When? Because in my mind, you you were born with a guitar. <laughs> no, I appreciate that, but but you know, I was talking to my partner the other day. Because you know, The Cure is her all time favorite band, right? And when I learned how to play guitar when I was fifteen, sixteen, I I started playing in that style that people would kind of more identify as the Cure style. But it was my style. But I never heard the Cure. Mm. So the first time I heard the Cure when I was seventeen years old, I was like, oh, this guy plays like me. You know, it was, it was born of a sort of a primitive desire to play a certain way. Well, it's the same thing with me with any technology. I don't, I actually don't want to know what I'm doing. You know, I, I've gone in there with beat makers and stuff and they, they flange the conga and I, I, it just doesn't work for me. I, the, the musician in me is like, where's the excitement? You know what I mean? The greatest rock and roll bands really didn't know what they were doing. You know, and that's, there's, in essence, the discovery becomes part of what intrigues the listener. They hear you stumbling into places you don't belong. So that's, it's that simple. I really don't know what I'm doing. I could afford to hire people who know what they're doing. And I, and I have at different times, but, you know, I work with Bon Harris who, you know, founding member of Knights or Ebb. He did a lot of the electronics on a door. I mean, Bon is not a savant with technology, but he, the guy understands a groove like nobody's business. So he would bring that, that understanding to like a primitive sort of approach. And he taught me that same primitive approach. So you know, it's as simple as this. It's like, does this sound better? Does this sound better? Okay, good. Let's go. You know, keep moving. So. Yeah, it's really good. And when, and when you listen to it in the context of this record, you know, you, you have really anchored it into what is some, some otherwise some very tight playing. What's amazing is hearing someone like Jimmy, who I know when you let him out, 
And he just like, no one plays like him. But he's so incredibly, restrained is the wrong word, focused on, is the word I would, I would use on this record. Focused on the, on the structure, on, on achieving his, his role within the song. Whereas there's been times even in songs you've recorded, not even played live, let alone live, where he's just spiraled off and somehow you've just caught up to him. <laughs> You know, and in this record, it just feels like he's in a different space. How did you kind of bring everybody into a place where they understood what their role was on this record? Because it's in the, in the musician's nature to express themselves freely. Sure. Well, with Jimmy's, Jimmy's thing is always songs number one. So Jimmy's always like, just kind of tell me what you're after and I'll try to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest compliment I could give Jimmy is he's one of the supreme drummers in the world. And he's totally fine with relegating his ability if it's better for the song. So it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, he doesn't, there's no weirdness at all. It's, uh, it's just kind of point me, point me down the road you want to go down. What's interesting is, is people listen to the record, they start to hear this other layer of, of rhythmic subtlety that's in there. You know what I mean? Like their first reaction is like, wait, where's all the strum and drang? But then they listen to it, they start to hear the personalities kind of in there. So it's, it's cool. I think, I think people uh, understand it when they hear it. What connects... Song one and song twenty. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I couldn't tell you because I'm obsessed with the idea, especially when you give me twenty songs in a time where one song really just exists at a time. That yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. idea of track listing and the idea of a cadence of why, and I just, I just can't believe that you get to the end and you're like, well, the last one I've left is twenty, so that'll be twenty. There has to be some flow to it. <laughs> I'm I'm a big believer that um, it's okay to be imperfect and it's okay to to show like things that end at dead ends and something. So if something has a qualitative level, it makes the record. And if it doesn't, I kind of set a certain line. But there are probably four or five songs on there that have a sort of meandering quality that I kind of like because it sort of speaks to the it speaks to a greater reality than perfection. I've complained pop as a contrivance that sells perfume and motor cars is about a sort of an idealistic state of perfection, which nobody can maintain, which is why a lot of people go insane. Okay. I'm kind of on the other side of the street. I'm okay with the lumpy moment. I'm okay with the, the something that kind of, you know, for example, I remember having an argument with Butch Vig on putting the song sweet, sweet on Siamese dream, which was like, this is a great album. We don't need this song. And I was like, I kind of like it. It's as simple as that. You know what I mean? I kind of like it. Kind of like it. <laughs> And now when I listen to the record, it's part of, it reflects something about the, the moment. You know what I mean? It's, 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 an, it's like an incomplete thought or it's a, it's a sentence that doesn't finish. Like that's part of life too. He was right, but so were you. That's the weirdest thing because I have such distinct, vivid memories of hearing that album on cassette for the first time in Auckland and getting to Sweet Sweet and just being like... <laughs> <laughs> If I'd only known. But of course it would have swayed. No, but over time, you're right. It's this moment of of real release and it's just really beautiful, like you say, wistful relief in the record that is otherwise quite emotionally brutal. On the Sierra album, there's two albums. There's the 16 song one, that which is like perfect and shiny and, and about as good as we can do. And there's the 21, the 20 song that's just a little bit messy. And I think something more is said in the 20 than the 16. And then I look and I think, well, most people will listen to most music on streaming now. They're going to playlist what they like. So it's okay. Like, let's go back to being messy. I like the weird songs by certain bands. It's like there's some weird Neil Young songs that I like that I don't think anybody else likes. It's like I'm cool with that. That's kind of the, the mentality that goes into that. 
you didn't really sort of answer the track listing question, and that's okay because you sort of did, but 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 I'm not going to get the answer. I was I was I I had pre-designed in my head, and the reason I had designed it in my head what was what was the answer? I'm that it was going curious. to be this like starts at one, ends at here. The last line of the last song is so because when you talk about the falls is because of this, and it started with this, and da 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 da. But let me let, I can I can answer the question slightly differently. I think we live in a disassociative world, and I think in the 20 songs there's a greater representation of the disassociation. We live in a world now where nothing begins and nothing ends. And in a weird kind of way, nobody dies. I mean, they're already talking, Elon Musk and them, they're already talking about neural implants and your personality can live after time. And then there was the Kardashian thing where they brought the dad back with the hologram. You can clone your dog. Right. So we're kind of right on the edge of, of, of kind of living forever. So does an album really begin or end anymore? Does it, you know, is there really a beginning and ending? Is it, 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 it's a constant disassociative state. I, you know, uh, my, my partner and I watched Westworld. I don't know if you've seen that, oh, that yeah. series. Oh, yeah. There's a certain ambience in the show that they capture this sort of disassociative. Like, basically, the modern world they're entering into is half virtual, half literal. And then you get into the robotics end, which is a whole other thing of, like, how we we'll interact with AI and robotics. But this idea that modern life is this kind of weird, is it real, is it not real? And it's hard to ask. And who do, who do you ask to even tell you what that is anymore? So I think the album in its own 20-song way sort of represents this level of disassociation. I never would have sequenced an album like this 20 years ago because I would really have thought of it as like, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. To me, this is just like, it's like some sort of big informational soup and dive in any point you want and come out the other side. And and I'm the last person to tell you what your entry point is and what your out is. Because I'm meeting 20-year-olds who are super in a Siamese dream and then I'm meeting other 20-year-olds who said, I don't even know your 90s work. I only listen to the stuff from the last few years. You're the curling final in the Winter Olympics. I don't get that joke. It's your joke. You said it to Lars Ulrich. Is it? Yeah. You Is said it? it to I'm Lars sorry. Ulrich of Metallica on his Apple Music radio show. He said, I, I don't. Here's the thing, man. I don't understand. Like, why so many young kids still come to Metallica shows, you know? And you went, because people only f***ing care about curling when it's the Olympic final. And because I don't give a f*** about curling into the Olympic final. You're the Olympic final of curling. That's so good. Good, good, good Lars impression, by the way, too. That's awesome. I've used that so many times. Do you ever pinch yourself? Do you ever go, hmm, is this, is this actually real? Am I, am I really here? But you're talking to somebody who has dreams that are real. Mm. I had a dream the other morning. My, I, I go through periods where I'll dream for months at a time, like I'm eating like in blocks of time. And I'll have like two hour dreams almost every morning before I wake up. And they're like full movies, they're full scenarios, and sometimes I visit the same places again with the same characters. And the other morning I was having a dream where I, I was completely convinced it was real. Everything, everything was colorful, tactile, all the rules of gravity applied. And I remember thinking in the middle of the dream, wait, this is a dream, this isn't real. And there's a in, in the Carlos Castaneda's books, if anybody's ever read them, Don Juan tells... Uh, the main character, because no one ever knows if these books are fictional or real. But he tells the main character, if you're in a dream and you want to control the dream, look at your hands. So I remember this in the dream. So I was like, okay, if this is a dream, it's let me see if it's a dream. So I'm going to look at my hands. And every time I would look at my hands, they would phase, like they would glitch, like in a video game. And I put my hands back down and I look again and they would glitch. And that's about the time I woke up. How do you feel when you wake up from that? Well, this is the thing. What is the difference between having a dream where things happen? And I mean, I've had dreams where I hug people and they feel physically real. 
Like I have the same sensation as if I walked up and hugged you. So you tell me what's real. I don't, I don't, I'm not the person to say. The one thing I do know from all my spiritual uh, musings over the years is that the most important thing in life is to be as much into the moment as you can be. That seems to be the thing that balances all concepts out. Like if you get to- super into the moment you're in, you can both accept that it's possibly a dream, but you can also accept that you're you're fully in the body and you're having this reality to its to its utmost. That seems to balance two ideas. The disassociative nature, which online culture uh, promulgates, is no, you don't have to be in the body. You, you can just kind of be here in a, a kind of a virtual thing and nobody ever dies. And you can, you know, you die in the video game, you just hit the button, you start over again. How do you, who is someone who clearly has an incredibly overactive wiring that you're able to, you have art, which is great because art is what you need. <laughs> thank, God, thank, God. thank God. That's what you, thank God. That's what you need. But, but yeah. when you're not making it or you're not there, what is your sort of, how do you stay in the moment is my question. If you've learned that that is really ultimately a key to some kind of equilibrium and some kind of purpose, how, what do you, what tools do you use? Well, I'm going to answer this question in the reverse. Um, when you're traumatized, disassociative thinking or, or daydreaming or fantasizing is a way to navigate pain. Right, because you don't want to deal with what's going on in here. So I have to be very careful because as somebody who is traumatized quite young, there's always a thin line for me between hyperactive creative state and falling off the edge of a cliff. Because OCD, OCD is a is a really a byproduct. If you if you listen to some people, is a byproduct of a lack of control. And and what happens when you don't have control, you become anxious. That's that's what it comes down to, right? It's a, it's a way of trying to control your environment. But that's part of the disassociative nature. You have yeah. to be very careful with that. So can you channel that OCD energy into productivity? So for me, it's writing songs. It's running business. It's talking to you. It's like staying active. But, you know, an unhealthy me would end this interview and then spend the next three days going, oh, that one thing I said to Zane, like I could have said that better. And he gave me a funny look and now something bad's going to happen. You know, that that I... That I had to learn how to control, kind of like leave it on the field, you know, which is why, you know, somewhere along the way, I chose that honesty was my best course. I didn't have the brain space to kind of try to manipulate my environment constantly. For a lot of people who, who deal with situations like that, the way that we have done and, and still have the capacity to do, coping mechanisms comes in all ways, shapes and forms. You know, did you ever, were you ever in danger of, of trying, of doing other things? I mean, I've never even asked you this, you know, were drugs or alcohol ever an issue for you? Were they ever something that you ever used to distract yourself, you know, at the height of it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I say this glibly. I don't have the physical constitution to, to continue to party. I just don't have the physical ability to do it. So even if I wanted to, I, I would only get a few days into it and I'd have to not stop where other people around me, well-documented to go, like, <laughs> go and go and go, like wind-up toys, um, always amazing. So, yeah, but I, I certainly had that. I come from a lot of addiction in my family. No, for me, it was probably the, 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 the twin demons of self-doubt, overwork, and then interloping that into, as many people do when, they're, when they have... Um, you know, uh, hypervigilance and things like that. People from come from trauma, then seeing suicide as sort of a, like a, like a viable option within the realm of decision-making. 
in essence, I got used to thinking of suicide as like, well, I've always got plan B, you know, like if everything goes terrible, well, I can always press this button. I'm good. I'm out. It was like a, almost like a stress reliever, which is very unhealthy because what you have to do is you cannot have that be part of your inner architecture. It just can't be a decision because you're playing roulette. You know, you're playing roulette with circumstance. You can't, I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into it, but yeah. for me, it was trying to balance out. And so, yeah, I went into un- other unhealthy things, you know, um, where people around me <laughs> partied. I, I just be in the studio for 14 hours. The Billy that I'm talking to now, who has worked out that honesty and transparency and trying to find a way through a conversation as a, as a learning exercise, as much as it is a sharing or promotional exercise, at least so that's what I'm getting out of every conversation I'm having with you lately. Just someone who's kind of cracked how to do it, right? It's, it's the same desire, but you've worked out, you're getting really good at it. The Billy who first came out in the early 90s, I think you were trying to do that still. You were always honest, but you were honest. And this, what you said before reminded me of that. I remember, being, remember reading articles with you in Spin Magazine. You talk openly about, well, if it all goes pear-shaped, I'll just, I'll just kill myself. And it was almost glib and it was like humorous, yada, but that became the headline. And then it becomes like, you're so successful, but you talk about wanting to kill yourself. They don't, they don't, those things don't equally match up, you know? What, what's wrong with you? You should be happy. You should be happy. And then it becomes this thing, right? And that's kind of what I feel it ended up being for a while. There was just like, why are you complaining? And it's just so off. Like, it's like, it's not, it's not a competition. It's a life. It's like what you go through is real, right? Yeah, but I do, I do think that I had to learn a valuable thing in that I grew up, you know, lower middle class. And you have to remember that if you've been lucky, as you and I've been lucky, you always have to have one eye on the fact that 99% of people will never have the opportunities that we've had. So if you don't kind of lead with, Hey man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world and I feel blessed to be here. And then here's, here's my sort of rap. The rap becomes a thing that almost makes people feel bad. Like it's, it ends up almost insulting them. Mm. And that's something I had to learn. You know, like in essence, both things can be true. I can complain about my stupid rock star problems. Why at the same time, respecting that somebody who grew up like I did or worse, which is many people have a hard go. And they may not have the same opportunities that I had. And I have to have a little bit of balance and appreciation. Self-awareness, basically. A, a deeper sense of how you... you... You become a bit tone deaf, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're in your $3,000 coat driving your $150,000 car and you're complaining about how the re- how the record company dropped your record. But the girl sitting at home saying, I'd like somebody to drop my record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. like to have a record to be dropped. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, you can justify that by creating character. And it was interesting watching your interview recently, your conversation with my friend and yours, Dan Picada, where you really were very sort of open about the character versus the human and like, hey, check it out. It's more Bowie than you think. It's it's like I'm William Patrick Corgan, but at the same time, Billy's always been to some degree a character throughout this music. And I guess I was too lost in it because of what it meant to me as a fan and what I got out of the music to see that. But in a way, I guess that protected you at the height of that, right? In some respects, that allowed you to detach yourself from from all of that stuff we just talked about. Yeah, I, I created I created a kind of a, a living avatar. And like a method actor, I would go so deeply into it that I would talk that way and think that way. And then one day I would wake up and it would be over and I would move on to another character. It was certainly inspired by people like Bowie or Iggy Pop or you know, the guys in Bauhaus or whatever, I just kind of took liberally from what I want. I mean, look, Robert Smith plays a character. Now he's been Robert Smith for so long. 
that he is that guy. But you're also talking to somebody who played tabletop tennis against Robert. And he told me at one point, him and his sister had won the championship for their area in England at, you know, ping pong. And he killed me at ping pong, you know, 24 to one kind of thing, you know what I mean? Or whatever, 21 to zero. No, you got one. You got one. You can claim one. I, I got one, yeah. I got one point against Damon Orban, who is like a fucking assassin. I've never seen him so angry. There's nothing worse than a ping pong assassin. You know, it's funny you talk about Robert Smith being that because someone said to me a few years ago now, because we were talking about like the cult of Robert Smith and the idea of Robert Smith being Robert Smith all the time. And they were like, someone said to me, Robert Smith still gets out of the shower, you know? And if you, if you imagine Robert Smith with that hair just down here with a towel around him, just like putting on deodorant like the rest of us, like the whole thing is shattered. My generation was everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time. That was the saying from the 50s or 40s or whatever. Right. So, yeah, so I, so was, I use these characters to kind of create distance. And then over time, it kind of became like a game of chicken with journalists. Yeah. You know, how far could they push me and how far could I push them? Wasn't that exhausting after uh, a while? No, it was quite, it was quite, that was quite amusing as long as you were selling records. You know what I mean? Well, you made this music that was so beautiful and emotional and personal and drew us into your world whilst also really enhancing ours. Then everyone wants to get to know you and you're like, you don't get to know me. You get to know Billy. But then it's like, okay, I'm a character now. Bill Hicksish, it's almost Andy Kaufman-esque. Kaufman. Yeah. yeah. But I don't like Billy. Billy's a dick. Billy's being a dick to me right now. He's not being forthcoming in this interview, or he's doing this, or he's doing that. And to you, that's really funny. But eventually, it becomes. I, I wonder what the where's the this, you know where does it end? Like like Williams probably going home and going, ah, oh, yeah, maybe I pushed that interview a little bit too far. It was funny to me. But all they think is like Billy's 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 not the guy I want to hang out with. Greatest troll quote I ever saw on me was where somebody wrote, "I don't like Billy, but I like his music." I mean, think about that. It's like, yeah, huh? yeah. There's like in my mind, there's no separation. You kind of separated it though, because you, I don't, I just can't believe that you wrote a song like Soma, any of the songs on Malikoli, any Stand Aside Your Love. I can't imagine you wrote a song that is about as pure a paying to love as Billy the character. That's w- William, isn't it? Well, it's a bit of both, but more, more, more William. Yeah, but but here's the thing: the the other the other overlay was identifying which now it's very obvious by the way i've been in the media for 30 years yeah when i figured out circa 1991 that the media was totally full of shit and was agenda driven i was shocked it was like a wizard of oz moment like what do you mean like i thought i thought this was a world of equity and fairness not a world of agenda so that that engendered in me this other thing that is the third person in the room which is Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this thing upside down. I'm gonna use their energy like Olay, you know, like a matador. I know they're gonna come at me, and I'm gonna Olay them and just build up the energy. Again, it works very well when you're selling records and you're popular. Yeah, it's not a good formula when you're not as successful because then the articles strictly become about the grudge. Yeah, but in my in my Chicago esque thinking, I wanted to ride that ship all the way to the bottom, and I did. You knew that there was that risk and you were, and you were willing to go there. You're willing to say, man, you know, if I'm going to go out, it's going to be like, let's crash and burn this. Let's go. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think, why is that? Why do, why do people still wish or, or fantasize that Tupac's alive or Jim Morrison? Why is that? Because they, they don't want to let go of the character. The character of Billy was really good for business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Was it good for William? No, no, it's terrible. It's a terrible idea. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's what I'm getting to. 
but it was also born of its time and it was born of my youth and born of my insecurity. And I don't also don't think I would have survived it. I probably would have jumped up a cliff somewhere along the way. So I'm not excusing it. You know, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story, which is a bit personal. Um, you know, I, I've talked openly about my dad struggling many times with drugs and, you know, having addiction problems for over 30 years. And my, my father, I mean, by the way, this is, I'm talking about when I was a child, not as an adult. My father used to tell me when I was a child about how he would sit in a room with the gun in his mouth and contemplate here, pulling the trigger. And the only reason he didn't pull the trigger because he could hear his kids laughing outside. Okay. That's the kind of stuff my father told me as a kid. Okay. So like anybody who grows up with a, with a parent that <clears throat> has problems with addiction, you know, you kind of fall into a very simple version of like, you know, if dad didn't do drugs, life would have been better. And that's absolutely true. But there is another side to that, which is I now realize that my father's use of drugs was his way of staying in the game. <clears throat> in fact, I think if he hadn't done what he'd done, I don't think he would still be here. So one day I called him up and I said, I get it now. I said, I understand why you did what you did. I don't agree with it. You certainly could have taken a different path, but what you did was what you needed to do in that time to get from point A to point B. So I can at least appreciate that now. And that kind of healed this one rift. That's huge. That's huge. So what I'm trying to say in my own selfish way is these were the things that I did to get from point A to point B. At least right. I'm still here to talk about it. Because yeah. I don't think I would have survived it. And I say this like I'm going to use the same qualifier. To anybody who wishes that somebody like me appreciates success, I absolutely do. I'm super blessed. So what I'm about to say is no mark against that. The, the act of being a public person in this culture, in American culture over the last 30 years is a absolutely crazy traumatizing thing. No one is psychologically or physically prepared as a human machine to deal with that level of weirdness. And by the way, it's only gotten weirder in the last 30 years. And if you're a sensitive person like I am, of course you can't deal with that. So that's not an excuse. It's just the way it is. And so what most people do is they fall into sociopathy. They, they, they create a false sense of self. They create a false sense of grandeur. And eventually they fall off that cliff when people stop caring. I dealt with those things in public in my 20s, inverted the process. It almost killed me. I survived it. And now I'm on the other side. I think it's kind of funny and I'm happy. There are some key themes in this record that continue to show up as they do throughout your writing. But there is a whole lot of new learnings. And I feel, I'm so glad you said you took a you know, solid year to put this together in your mind and, and really almost research is the way you, I took what I took from it before, because there's so many reference points. And I feel like you were sort of like giving me a prelude during our last conversation and the music you were picking, this deep traditional folk music and things that were drawing, were bringing history into popular culture and making history something people would sing. People would sing these choruses, but really they're historical reference points, you know? it's And, and in, in a way you've done the same thing, you draw, all these different figures and characters. This is not something that I feel you're born with. You you learn, you read. I feel like you've been reading. I feel like history has been playing an important part in your life lately. And you're diving into this this, this new world of knowledge and it's it's forming it's almost poetry, this album. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's a weird combination of folk folk brain with modern melodic sense of time and melody. Yeah. Speaking as my own critic, I think that's kind of a rare combination. I can't say a lot of people have ever done that. Yeah, it's deep. I mean, there are definitely moments in the... Actually, I want to ask you this. I've never asked you this. <laughs> when do you get to a point... Which, when, do you, when do you get to a point where you've done the song, you want to call it Witch, 
and you go, <laughs> two eyes. <laughs> because you just, you, it's, it's one of my favorite things in the world is the way that you invent words out of existing words. Well, I learned that from William Burroughs and, and some of my other heroes. Um, they basically, William Burroughs used to talk about how much there's, there's a lot of hidden violence in language. Oh, I love that. The, the simple, simplest illustration is I could, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I could say I could say five words in a row, and you wouldn't think anything of it, and I could switch the order of those five words, and you would be offended never talking. So William William Burroughs talked very pointedly about how there's hidden violence in language, and how and that was obviously influenced Bowie as well, like by moving words around. Dylan did it too. You take two words, you put them in one order, you reverse them, suddenly there's violence there. And so probably around the time I started working with Rick Rubin on on the OG Lala album, I started kind of working more deeply with this kind of word violence in a different kind of folkloric way than maybe I had done in Melancholy, which was probably the first explosion of that kind of lyrical approach. I, I guess what I would say in, in the binary choice way is, is I'll write something and if it makes me feel uncomfortable, I think, oh, there's something there. Like, why does that make me feel uncomfortable? Because most things don't make me uncomfortable. So I try to use my own discomfort as a guide to sort of say, well, there's something in that language there. Even if at times I don't know what it means, I just take, I just kind of get a physical sense of like, there's something there, but who knows what it is. And of course, when you we, when you apply it to the onomatopoeia of the way you sing something, the voice, of course, has its own language. And then magically, if you put all the scenes together, it starts to evoke like suddenly somebody's here, you know, getting a Civil War memory or, you know, like a memory that they shouldn't have. That's the that's the beauty of, of multidimensional music if it's presented in a particular way. But you've also the way you've also always pronounced words when you sing them really opens it up to interpretation too if someone hadn't sent me the lyrics forever i would have thought you were singing about sunny on which and not about sam hain which is like and i don't know which one i want more i don't know whether i want to just live in my little personal world where you've got a friend called sunny and we all wish that you were singing about sunny or whether it's about sam hain a gaelic festival and i'm not entirely sure which one i like better <laughs> But the witches are mad at me because I mispronounced Sam Hain. Right. How was it supposed to be? It's like I got people online going, giving, having a go at me because I, I mispronounced Sam Hain. And I said, wait, I'm an American in Chicago. And mispronouncing words is part of, our, part of my heritage. Good to have that card in your pocket, isn't it? Every now and then you want to use it. You know, hey, man, I'm a Chicago, Chicagoian from America. What do you want from me? I do it all the time. I'm from New Zealand. I'm doing it all the time. I'm like, oh, coming up next is Dua Lipa. And they're like, it's Dua Lipa. I'm like, I'm from New Zealand. <laughs> It's like, here's my card. The, one of the songs that really stood out to me, and you might consider this to be one of those beautiful, meandering, weird little songs, I hope not, is, is Dulcet Knee. What I love about that song is that it's, it's really, it's essentially for me, if you strip away all of the beautiful sonic accoutrement, is it's a country song. That's what I hear. I just hear it's a beautiful country lullaby song. Firstly, who's, do, who's doing BVs on it? Uh, it's Katie Cole and Sierra Swan. Okay. Uh, both have toured with us, Katie, more often than Sierra, but um, they're basically friends and, and it's like family business. You know, they come and just help. Katie did all, almost all the vocal arranging on the, on the entire record. Just an incredible job. Yeah, amazing. So she helped you with your melodic approach too. She was, she was one of the people who helped you go into places vocally that I haven't heard you go for a while. I mean, what's really beautiful is that there's moments when you sweep very sharp vocally on some of these songs, um, almost an octave up, and it really catches, it's just like, wow. Not to take anything away for Katie, but anything I sing is sort of my weird world. Got it. So Katie was basically reacting off of my weirdness and, and 
anybody knows music, that's hard to do because I sing a lot of sevenths and ninths and songs, so possible to harmonize against that stuff. So, the, so the idea of that song and, and and what I'm saying originally being it's sort of kind of a country song, and based on what we played on the playlist show a few months ago, uh, is there is this this whole kind of world of songs that we don't know about that have you sitting in your living room with an acoustic guitar and a four track or an eight track or in your studio that haven't seen the light of day? Is there a country Corgan record? Um, I've actually been planning on doing something. Um, I'm friends with Hillary Williams, who's Hank Jr.'s daughter and granddaughter of Hank Sr., and we're talking about doing a bluegrass band, possibly with a couple other people. Now, I, I really want to do bluegrass music. I, I, it's something in my heart that I hope to do soon. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to hear that. I mean, I think that song is one of the standouts for me on the record, just in terms of the overall experience listening to it. Now, I'm going to clip this quote because that is, see, this is a classic example. There are people in my world, not the band, but business world, that don't get that song at all. The one you just said, Dulcet Knee. They fought, they fought, they not only fought me putting it on the record, they fought me putting it out early before the record came out. Who has the, who would possibly say <laughs> no to you? Who's going to do that? I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, but there are, there are times I have to pull the, I, I am Billy Corgan and, and this is my world card. Yeah. That is one of them. But, that, but that's a perfect example where I, I, I thought it was a great song. And you hand it in and, and, and people start going, yeah, I don't really get it. What keeps showing up on the record too, and I've, I've tried to kind of get you into this space to talk about this before, and perhaps we've never got a, a, you know, a real answer because it, there wasn't one there, but faith is an undeniable reference point for you in your writing. Undeniable. Too, too many examples now of God and of various other religious figures, the idea, the experience, the security, and the fear simultaneously that comes with dedicating yourself to something unknown. And I, you know, I, I really still to this day don't really know what it is, what kind of experience that is for you outside of the iconography within your music. What role faith or spirituality plays for you? Well, I guess you could call me kind of a, a mystical pagan or something. People like to argue with me about this, and that's totally fine. They should. My general belief is that if God created the world as we know it to exist, uh, he or she or they um, put in a bunch of backdoor codes to, to wink at you, to let you know that there's this kind of divine order or this kind of, you know, the wheels turn a particular way for a particular set of reasons. It could be mm. karmic. It could be, mm. could be somebody's got a big script up somewhere and they keep rewriting it every half second. And that's just sort of my general belief. So if you're a, if you're a video game player, then the idea would be, well, can you game the system? Can you game the system for an advantage? And the system in that particular regard is game is game for love and sentient awareness gives you an advantage in the game. Negativity gives you a short-term advantage, but you won't win the game. That's just my belief. In terms of, you know, tradition, I was raised Catholic and and uh, I certainly believe in the saints and all that stuff. But I, I, my general feeling is, and this, this offends some people, and I've had these arguments with many friends who are more dogmatic in terms of religion than I. And I like to say, if, if there is a God, which I do believe there is, that God is not petty. That God's just not hung up on whether or not you put the left foot in front of the right or said the prayer, you know what I mean? It's more of an awareness situation. And I, that's what I, I like. I like to think that God knows your heart. Mm. And so if God knows your heart, knows that you're good, well, then good things should happen. And yes, bad things happen to good people, but there might be a greater mystery there that we can't understand that that's not to excuse it and say you know that's like yeah i believe in this until i I hit the thing i don't like and then you know somehow i want to walk around i I believe my belief system takes into account that life is a a tremendous opportunity and 
God loves us enough to give us the opportunity to play it however we want. So if we want to waste it, we can waste it. Uh, if we want to do harm, there's, I think, some greater penalty that goes on maybe off grid. And that's what I believe. Um, and it doesn't get that much more complicated for me than that, because ultimately you're going to run into some contradiction. And unless you're meditating on a hill 12 hours a day, you're not going to be able to reconcile. It. But for those for those who don't believe and who are atheistic or agnostic, like, I don't care. That's cool if that's what you believe in. I just think the yield is greater in this path. That's been my experience. To look at you as a, as a brother than an adversary or somebody I have to manipulate to get something I want is ultimately the greater yield on me and you. But you have to believe in something larger to do that. Because if you're, if you're not and you live in a kind of a, what I would call a satanic frame of mind, well, then this interview would be, what do I have to say to Zane to get him to do the thing, to say the thing so that I get rewarded because I want the crack hit of mm -hmm. more views or more clicks or something. If you really are on the other side of that, you, you're willing to throw it all up in the air and say, good things are bound to happen. And I'm willing to accept the consequences of that, which is what freed me from needing to play an infinite variety of characters in real time. It's so great to hear you say that because I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about this and they were like, you don't seem preoccupied with like going in with five or six key viral touch paper, like light it up type things at the moment. You just seem far more interested in having a big glob of conversation and seeing what comes out of it. And, and I was like, it's so much more rewarding for me than to feel like I've got to chase down six things. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, someone real quickly in, in, in the sphere, right? Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. who would have guessed Joe Rogan would be the number one. I think he's number one podcaster guy in, in the world. Yep. Who would have guessed that a guy who was willing to have three hour conversations about MMA, weed, rock and roll, you know, quantum string theory, would be what people would want. But why do they want it? Because, and I've interviewed with Joe, it's just an authentic conversation. Mm. Mm. And maybe somehow in our busy world, we haven't lost the capacity to still want to sit around the barbershop or something and just hear somebody talk about something that's kind of interesting. Like maybe we're not able to do that with our fast-paced life, so this is a sort of a, a pseudo-replacement for that. You know, the ability just to sit and listen to people have a really good, interesting discourse and even disagree and you know, like that, that there's something sort of stimulating about that. But in the, but in the satanic mind, you know, we're, we're adversaries, right? I need something from you. You need something from me. Everything's a trade though. Everything's a trade. Everything is a trade. That's what I figured out a couple of years. No, it really is. I mean, with the exception of family, which you could almost argue is as well, you know, everything is kind of a trade, <laughs> you know? Elvis's manager used to say, um, um, how much does it cost if it's free, right? <laughs> exactly. How much does it cost if it's free? Exactly. Meaning there's nothing free in this world. There's nothing free. I, it's not in my interest to go and try and get a viral moment out of it. So let's talk about the pause cover in Anderson Cooper. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm, just, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. I'm happy to knock any globalist shield upside the head. Because I completely forgot about that. And that I just landed on that. And I was just like, that is so fucking bonkers. Like, that is one of the craziest news stories. Got to be in your lexicon of press clippings. By the way, let's recount the facts quickly. Anderson Cooper, who, who'd never before spoken about me, Four months after I do a cover for a charity magazine, on the eve, literally the eve, I think my album was coming out the next day, runs a report about how I'm a has-been rock star because I appeared with my cats on the cover of a charity magazine. And the, the general gist of the piece was how far the mighty have fallen, what an embarrassment. 
by the way, I went after him completely old school OG style, right? Guys never said a word. Why? Because he's guilty. Because somebody got in his ear and told him, yeah, give this guy a kick in the knee for whatever fucking reason. So that's what the bad side needs to do. That's fine. They did it. That, you know, it didn't, it didn't do anything. And we even printed t-shirts. We even printed t-shirts with my cats on it. It said Anderson Cooper. What's really interesting is, and your show is part of that. We're seeing the rise the rise of a new media and the fall of the old media where a bunch of people for their own weird, fucking weird agendas get to decide who wins and loses. You're looking at somebody who for 30 years has had to deal with weird people in rooms deciding whether or not I was going to win or lose. And the great news is from this moment forward, those people can't make those decisions anymore. It's the, it's, it's the greatest boon for artists probably in the history of, of the world, maybe past the Renaissance. 100%. This story at least feeds into the idea that this is the difference. That's the old world where somebody can hit you over the head with a cartoon hammer and, just, and say, bang, bang, you're dead. Those, that, those days are over. Assuming 100% that you are including me in the new world, otherwise we're going to fight. Absolutely. Then what well, I figured out really quickly, and this plays into what you're saying, and also I think is perfectly timed for this new Smashing Pumpkins, William Billy Corgan, <laughs> wonderful time. Okay. Is that the artist and the fan, direct conversation. No need for me at all. I woke up one day and realized that if I didn't make myself a part of this conversation in a holistic and interesting way, in a human way, and it was just promotion or it was just salacious viral this or whatever, I was out of a job. Because you don't need to come to me for that. If you want to, if you want to stoke the fires and, and set fire to something, you just do it direct. You just go for it. You don't need me to do it. What we can have is a conversation. We can get to know each other one conversation at a time over and over again until we're old and go, wow, that micro lane within all the lanes of conversation I had was a really interesting one. Getting to know Billy was a real joy in my life. I like to say the future is curation, right? And so they'll look to people like you or people like me to say, I don't have a lot of time. Tell me what's valuable and I'll give you my time because you won't waste mine in return. And I think that's that's what your situation and Joe's situation sort of demonstrates is, is the rise of this kind of curation. And hopefully in that, we'll get back to de a deeper discourse about art, politics, mm. everything. The deeper conversation that needs to happen. This is laying the foundation for that. That's what's beautiful about it is it's not like a continuation of something that worked before. It's the reset. It is a reset. You know, and I and I, you know, I'm here for all of it. Yeah, I mean, let me just say one one thing, just to, to, to put a funny cap on it. Imagine working on an album for a year. You know, the journalist flies over from England, and the first question he asks you is, "Why are you wearing a dress?" That was my life for many years. Like this contrast of complete devotion in one space to complete stupidity in the other. <laughs> so, you know. In a, in a class clown way, I was like, all right, I'm just going to go with this. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that makes you want to create a character. Yeah, it's wrestling, it's stupidity. And so the beautiful thing that sort of brings this whole conversation full circle is, thank God I have my own family. Thank God I have my band, you know, mostly intact. And I feel strong enough within myself to just be imperfectly me. You know, that's, that's fine. And if people don't like it, that's cool. I get it. That's great world choices. I'm more in the appreciation side of like, wow, I'm still here. This is great. Awesome. Then the other side of like, I got to fight the guy who's mad at me because I'm wearing a dress. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's totally different experience is what I'm trying to say.
It's great to see you. The album's a triumph, man. Thank you, sir. And uh, I'm sending you nothing but love. Namaste. Yeah, I was really happy with that one. That's me talking to Billy Corgan. I mean, the first few conversations I had with him back in the 90s, it was hard for me to get sort of past my own stuttering, stammering fan worship. But now I feel we're in a place where we're starting to communicate. And hopefully that was evident. Add a rating, add a comment, subscribe to the space. There's more conversations to come. We're not stopping. We're keeping going. There's a few stacked already you're going to love. So get ahead of it.